Welcome to When Pigs Fly, a podcast that uncovers Cincinnati's rich business history dating back from the 1800s to today. We talk to companies to learn the ups and downs of entrepreneurship, what it takes to grow a successful business, and to simply prost to future innovation. I'm one of your co-hosts, Allie Martin. I'm Patrick Bailey. And today we're talking to Tony Ranieri. He is the owner and president of Solar Is Freedom, which is a solar panel company. He's in the energy industry. And Patrick, I don't know about you. I'm really excited about this because this is like bringing my uh, inner hippy dippy side out in me because I'm a believer in clean energy. I'm a believer in saving the whales, clean the beaches, clean the waters, clean the air. Let's go. <laughs> I hate to disappoint you and our listeners, but I am not as much in tune with that side of me. I kind pick of love electricity. Pick a side, listeners. Pick a side. <laughs> I love my electricity and I love my plastic straws, not going to lie. You could still <laughs> but, like your electricity. But yeah, but that's why I'm excited about this conversation is to learn. Like I'm totally Really yeah. open to learning more. The interesting part of this, right, is our city as a whole, which I guess mm. is classic to Cincinnati, we definitely were behind in reluctant into adapting into electricity. And I'm over here thinking, okay, Thomas Edison, you're from Cleveland. What are you doing? Like, throw <laughs> us a bone down here in Cincinnati. And because Shout it was, out to uh, our Lay of the Land uh, podcast uh, yes, up north. Yes, we do. Lay of the Land, if you haven't listened to Lay of the Land, they're also talking about the startup industry and entrepreneurship in Cleveland. But yeah, so Thomas Edison, right? He's from Cleveland. And and I'm thinking, okay, throw Cincinnati a bone with electricity. But for the longest time throughout the 1800s and even well into the 1900s, we were run on gas. Wow. Like that yeah. shocks me a little, but doesn't shock me because that's very par for the course for Cincinnati. Right? You know, so if you, if you live and you're listening to this, if you live in one of Cincinnati's really well-preserved houses dating back from the 1800s, your gas fixtures are probably still part of your decor today. And that ranges from roughly the 1840s till about the 1920s. I know. So I don't live in a house like that, but I would be curious to see kind of what the connection looks like and what that looks like. But it's true. And then for the longest time, we really only had – two companies going up against each other, and that was the Cincinnati Edison Electric Company and then the Cincinnati Gaslight and Coke Company. Mm. And it was it was all gas-driven for the longest time. But then, like, now we have even less competition in the space. Maybe Who's solar is freedom is going to be one of those competitors. That's what this conversation really, uh, gosh, bringing in Tony here soon in a second. I'm really interested to learn his perspective on maneuvering the business side in the energy space in a city that is obviously well dominated by Duke, but from a grid standpoint, how mm. we how we operate, how we light our homes and and run our energy day to day. We don't think about it, right? We plug in no. our phones every night and I don't boom, know what I would do power. without it. <laughs> but we don't because we don't see it. We mm. get a bill every month, but we don't see it. So what does changing that lifestyle to solar look like? Just mm. is everybody suitable for solar panels? I don't know. Do we do neighborhood solar panels and it be more, you know, farm block based microgrids? What does that look like? This is very foreign to me, but I'm very fascinated about how this potentially could change clean energy and move into energy. Will it change our lifestyle? I don't know. But no, he's about to give us the 411. Yeah, let's bring him in. I'm excited. You know, right out the gate, Tony, so you don't necessarily have a background in solar or energy, so to speak. So how and why did you want to get into solar panels and the installation for homes? I think that a lot of the answers to my questions are, are pretty intertwined. Mm -hmm. So really, I would say my my story started, you know, and, and I guess I'm trying to think about it in terms of how do I answer it without giving you other parts of my story? I, you know, I, I don't know. But so, but so, you know, I, I, I went to the University of Oregon actually out of high school. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I went to the University of Oregon as like a pre-psychology major because I had no idea what I really wanted to be. And then 
I took philosophy 101 at the University of Oregon with a professor named Mark Johnson. And I actually, as a freshman in, in college, I didn't go to one class. I didn't study. I didn't read. I didn't do anything. And then I was like, but I'm like, yeah, but you know, I'm not going to get bad grades. You know, I don't want to get, I don't want to get D's and flunk out. I pay a lot. I'm paying a, way too much money to be here as an out-of-state student. So the final was actually on, which book was it? It was The Stranger by Albert Camus. So, so the, the final was on that book. And so I was like, you know what, I'm going to at least read enough of this so that I can educate with education, try to answer some questions on the final. And then I started reading that book on a Saturday morning. And I remember exactly where I was. I read it cover to cover, Mm -hmm. never put it down. And then I went that next Monday and changed my major from psychology to philosophy. So what was it about the book that you were so enlightened so it's like a it's like an existential like sucker punch, uh, yeah. which is uh, the stranger. So it talks about a, an individual that has an individual that that has no emotion essentially. The the mm. protagonist, you know. So then that, I parlayed that book into a book by Kundera called "The Unbearable Lightness of Being." Uh, which is an extremely powerful uh, existentialist novel. And then I read like Laughter in the Dark and Lolita uh, and some of these uh, like kind of prose or fictional existential powerhouse novels from the early nine, you know, early 20th century. And so, so like I kind of went down that rabbit hole and then, you know, so I was kind of always thumbing around for the right book for the right time. So my first job, I graduated with a Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy from Ohio State in 2009. And I I think I was I was very close to cum laude. So I was like, just missed mm-hmm. the cutoff. So I was like a 3.4, 3, 3.5 GPA, despite the fact that I didn't start studying until that I read that book. But then naturally gifted student, uh, <laughs> good, no good test taker. <laughs> uh, no, I, I don't, I don't, I think, I think I was a good class picker. Uh, <laughs> so I just picked the easy classes. Uh, that, that was more my style. But then, so, so I was my first job out of college. I actually got a job as a dishwasher uh, mm. at Barley Smokehouse on Dublin Granville Road in Columbus, Ohio. And the chef there recommended me a book to read uh, called Siddhartha. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. I read uh, that in high school. So yes. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, so, so Herman Hess, uh, Siddhartha, I, I always keep a copy close by. And there's a part in the book where Siddhartha says, as the pebble finds its fastest way to the bottom, the b- bottom of the pond, that is how I find my path to success. So this is the answer to your question then. So <laughs> when I graduated, I think I had before, between the time I graduated and when I started my first business, I think I had 14 jobs. Uh, the majority of which I was fired from for insubordination. So I just, I was never really good at working for anyone, you know? So, but then I, I, I bounced around and then I I got a job selling windows for kind of a cutthroat company out of Dayton. You know, then I, I got, I would say I got, I got my first, well, I was working for two companies simultaneously in, in Columbus, Ohio. And I got fired from both of those jobs on the same day uh, because they found out that I was working for the other and then I finally got a break in the uh, home improvement space because my the vice president of the company I was working for at the time wanted me to go work for him. So then I moved to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I actually lived with my cat. I lived in my truck uh, oh, wow. in, in Pittsburgh. Uh, How while, old were you at this time, too? This was like 11 or 12, 12 years ago. So I was 22. Yeah, so so I graduated from Ohio State. I was one quarter one quarter late. We did quarters back then, so I was mm-hmm. one quarter behind. I took uh, the my final. I took like it was like the advanced level Latin. <laughs> Don't ask me to say or read anything in Latin uh, to pass to to from to get my degree from Ohio State. And then I had those fourteen or so jobs. Moved to Pittsburgh. I proved myself. Then I ended up moving to Dayton, and then Louisville, then back to Cincinnati. And then that's when I started a general contract, my first company, which is American Dream Contractors Ohio. Mm-hmm. That was my first company. And really, you know, we were an exterior home remodeling business, windows, roofing, roofing first, siding, windows, gutters, that sort of thing. And, and really in the beginning, you know, uh, really 10 years ago, I was walking around the streets of Cincinnati, knocking on people's doors, asking them if they wanted to go to, you know, to do business with us. And we were doing a lot of insurance work where we would get the insurance company to pay for the work. So in a lot of cases, we weren't, you know, we weren't asking the people that we were 
seeing to come out of pocket anything. So if you're not, if you're not paying anything out of your own pocket, it's like, Hey, why not? You know, so we, you know, American dream contractors. I actually, I mean, I, 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 so I graduated from Ohio state when I did, I had $109,000 in student loan debt oh, uh, when I graduated. Gosh. I made one of those little pie chart or not a pie chart, one of those thermometers and I drew it on my wall. And so I, in in 54 months after I graduated, I had paid that down to nothing to zero. Wow. And that was via your American dream contractors. So I had done really well, obviously in sales for the Mm -hmm. other companies that I had worked for, you know, so I had been chipping away at that, but it really wasn't until I went into business for myself that I really knocked that out. So it was always my goal to, all I really wanted to do was, I, I didn't. I didn't want to start a business. It was never a goal. I never wanted to be an entrepreneur. It was never really. I mean, you know, I was kind of. I, I had the entrepreneurial gene from when I was very young. Like I sold warheads to the other students when I was in fifth grade, and the business got shut down at Saint Veronica. You know, but so I, I kind of. I had the entrepreneurial gene or spirit. I just kind of. It was just. It was never important for me to identify it. Um, mm-hmm. So, so I never, I, it was not my goal to start a business. It was not my goal to be an entrepreneur. It wasn't my goal to, all I really wanted to do was be on the other side of my debt. That, that was, that was my fundamental goal. And as the pebble find its fastest way to the bottom of the pond, I was searching for, to relieve myself of that debt. And then my goal was to travel the world. You know, that was kind of, so th- those, those two things. And I will say that, that, you know, when people say I want to travel the world, I, I knew, I knew every single place that I wanted to go. I knew yeah. what the, I knew what the airport codes were for all of the cities that I wanted to travel to. I knew what hotels I was going to stay at. I knew how much the cab was going to cost from the airport to the hotel. I knew what room I wanted to stay in. I knew what restaurant I was going to eat at and what I was going to order off the menu when I got there. I mm-hmm. knew what wine I was going to drink, what beer now, I was going to drink. Now, is that just via your own research too? I mean, I, I spent, and this, 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 this is kind of leading to, uh, uh, other answers to other questions about like, why do you climb mountains and things like that? When you're broke, you don't really have anything except mm-hmm. your own imagination. I mean, at least for me, it forced me to be very tangible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it, and I didn't, it's not like, it's not like, Hey, this summer I'm going to travel the world because like, I need to decide where I'm going to go. I didn't have any means to do any of that. So mm-hmm. it, it forced me to be overwhelmingly acute or tangible and specific with what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go because I didn't have any resources to do anything else. Yeah. So when you when you started when you started those travels, and you had paid off the debt, correct? Your school. Yes. Debt. But did you have any savings for this travel at this point in time? I was kind of grow, but before I ended up starting my own business. I, I was doing really well. So I started to dabble in the traveling okay. process. So it was, it wasn't like, Hey, every spare penny is going to go to this. I started to dabble in traveling and seeing different parts of the world before my debt was paid. So I started to kind of work on those two goals simultaneously at that mm-hmm. point, you know, and, and it was, um, it was fascinating. My, my very first trip overseas I went to London and then I went to Rome and then I worked for six weeks in an orphanage in the smallest country in Africa, uh, Swaziland. Oh, wow. Um, so, and I, I, I went with a team of doctors and we would like distribute medication and eyeglasses and things like that. And I ended up actually building basketball hoops and installing them in uh, dorm dormitories for orphans. <laughs> My goodness, I feel like I have so many questions. And yes, this could be something that we could be talking until Monday yeah, morning, until I, the sunrise. I definitely <laughs> want to know, though, like, so you have all these interests, philosophy, travel, you did all these sales things, then you did construction, home remodeling. Mm-hmm. How yep. the heck did you get to, you know, solar, solar free, uh, freedom? Like, how did you get to solar energy from there? I, I would say, again, it comes back to the same question. It's it's as the pebble finds its fastest way to the bottom of the pond, you know, so... So I, I'm always a cur- I've always been a curious person, you know, and my mm-hmm. attention span's pretty short and I have a hyper type A personality. And and you know, so I'm always kind of researching and you know, thumbing around and and my brain is very active. So, you know, I, I'm I'm like I'm even now, you know, we just crossed over the 100 employee threshold. I'm probably mm-hmm. like the least 
I'm like the most anarchistic person we have. And like, so I like, I'm like, I'm so type A that I, I even buck against the system that I created. Like, so it's, <laughs> it's kind of weird. So, you know, I was always just interested and, you know, I, I was really, I was looking through Facebook probably 2014, 2015, and it was during the Obama administration. And I just saw like, you know, a big wave of new energy coming through and the next 20 years is going to be renewables. And, and, you know, and I was like, Hey, I've seen a couple solar jobs here and there. And so at that point, I, you know, being from Cincinnati and, you know, I'm like, Hey, well, we're working on roofs. I wonder if it could be a product that we could add to our service line. And, and then I made a bunch, I made phone calls to all the solar companies that were in the area and like the Columbus, you know, Athens, Cincinnati. How many area. were there too at that time? Do you think less than a handful total five or yeah. six, maybe. Wow. And no, none of, I mean, I called for appointments for five or six of them and none of them even called me back. Oh, you know, so I was like, maybe this is an underserved market. And, you know, come to find out when we started Solar Freedom in Ohio, less than 0.01% of houses in the state of Ohio had rooftop solar. Oh, wow. Uh, so the, the market penetration and in California at the time, it was around 10%. So, so I was, you know, in my head, I was doing the math. I was like, our market could grow 100 times and we would still be 100 times behind. <laughs> that is wild. Is Cincinnati and where we're located in the Midwest, is it good for solar? Well, so when we talk about designing a system, you know, not every house is going to qualify. Mm-hmm. Uh, so about about 85 to 90% of the houses we see, solar would even make sense to even start the conversation. You know, so some houses, the design doesn't work or some houses, the they, you know, like like my house, you know, I've got tons of trees around here and really the sun never hits my roof. So a house like mm-hmm. that, solar doesn't really make sense. Uh, so, but but that's more of the exception, not the rule. So in Cincinnati, the energy company is going to charge you if you own a home or if you rent an apartment, they're going to charge you between 11 and 13 cents per kilowatt hour for your energy bill. Mm-hmm. So when you're you're, char- you're getting charged 11 to 13 cents kilowatt hour, you know, the energy that a solar array is going to produce is going to uh, like the levelized cost over 25 years is going to be between three to five cents a kilowatt hour. And, and our, our bills are accelerating by anywhere from two and a half to five percent, you know, I mean, I'd say one to five percent per year, you mm-hmm. know, so energy rates in Cincinnati have gone up 10 to 15 percent over the last decade. And it's it's getting increasingly difficult to maintain and distribute and maintain the grid and distribute energy. Mm-hmm. I mean, case in point, if you guys saw what happened in Texas, oh yeah, um, yep. you know, people are getting $10,000 electricity bills because the demand was so high. The, the state of Texas is more of an independent grid system. Yes. You know, so like in Cincinnati, Cincinnati, the major player for energy is Duke, mm-hmm. uh, Duke Energy, Dayton, Dayton Power and Light, Columbus, uh, AEP, Louisville, Louisville Gas and Electric. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I mean, uh, Duke Energy is one of the largest energy providers in the country with, an, with a huge network, and so is AEP. I mean, there's, there's, just, there's extreme limitations when you're creating a pro- – I mean, imagine if Wi-Fi – work to the same way that energy does. And I mean, mm-hmm. and I think you can argue that maybe, 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 I guess the argument's getting less relevant, but I mean, power is much more important than Wi-Fi. Well, in order to power our Wi-Fi, yeah. we kind of need electricity <laughs> for that. So, so the, the, I mean, if you think about it, if there's one place that distributes energy, mm-hmm. um, you know, I mean, the, 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 the grid is very vulnerable. You know, we're, we're getting to a time, you know, we're getting to a place where because of how fast the energy demand is growing, if we were to take every car that's on the road right now and take and, and take it from being a gas powered car to an electric car, then those cars would use more electricity than every house in the United States combined. Yeah. And that's not changing anytime soon, though, to where where the automotive industry is going. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of major auto manufacturers are already giving strict energy or, or zero emission car standards for 2030, mm-hmm. 2040, 2050. I think I think GM just said by 2050, they're not going to be making gas powered cars anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, like AEP, for example, just announced a billion dollar project to install charging electric car charging ports along their network mm-hmm. from the East Coast to like St. Louis. So the even the energy providers are understanding that the demand for electricity is going to go up. So when the you obviously you know how supply and demand works, and then when you then when you add in you layer in that that the energy companies are federally subsidized and profits are guaranteed in their industry, you know 
Duke Energy just raised everybody's bills in North and South Carolina by 30% to clean up uh, to for a one, $1 billion or $10 billion subsidy to clean mm. up coal ash that they created from their dirty facilities. Wow. You know, so, you know, and, and that's, you know, Cincinnati is a growing, a very quickly growing metropolitan area and Columbus is growing even faster. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of young undergraduate, you know, a lot of these smart young talents from around the country are identifying Columbus and Cincinnati as areas like Austin, Texas, and, you know, uh, areas of pr- progressive areas where they can come and kind of create a, a home and a life and a living there. And, you know, people are going to want you know, residential solar projects even more. But again, without much demand is being put on the grid, the challenge for these energy companies is overwhelming. So mm. it's a really tough place from that grid maintenance standpoint to how do we make enough energy and then how do we get it to where it needs to go? It's a tremendous problem. Yeah. So when it comes to solar's freedom and installing solar panels on a residential roof, that then basically allows you to go off of that Duke grid, so to speak, right? So then how do you maintain that and work? Because you can't just be like, hey, I'm going to install these roofs and these panels. Bye, right? The the systems that we are installing now are grid tied systems. Mm-hmm. So you're not cutting the cord from the grid, and and you're 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 dependent on on to an extent you're dependent dependent upon something that's called net metering. So net metering means that the energy company will buy the energy back to you that you overproduce on top of your electricity bill. That's what net metering is. So so at this point, if you were to have solar panels on top of your house. You, those solar panels are feeding the the energy usage at your house. So your house is to 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 an extent, your house is literally running off of the energy that the solar produces. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so and you can if you go out on a sunny day and you have solar, you can actually literally watch your electric meter running backwards. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're putting cool. energy back mm-hmm. into the grid. So the energy company will then buy that energy back from you. Some energy companies like Duke will buy it back at a one-to-one rate, meaning they'll buy it back at the same rate that they are charging you. And some companies like DPNL and AEP, they'll buy it back at a reduced rate, but that's only for your overproduction. So really, you you know, we we shoot to not produce more than what you would use inside your home. Um, so, but if, if and, 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 you know, with the way the technology is, or with, with the advancement of the technology today, we really, we really can't store energy that well for that energy, at least at least not cheaply, for that energy to be functional inside your house with not having the reliance on the grid. But I, I think the the I mean the all the like the the final death nail for big power is when there is no reliance on the grid at all, which is kind of what you were asking, which is yeah. are do we actually cut the cord? Do we actually stop using energy from the grid altogether? And so as it stands in on you know March what's the date today? March 14th of 2021, battery technology has not advanced to the point where we can produce enough energy, successfully store that energy and use that energy when we need it and do it with the same level of efficiency that the grid provides. So we're going to still need, we're still going to have reliance on grid tied energy for the foreseeable future, um, which is definitely, I would say, 10 years on the on the low end and maybe 25 to 30 years on the high end uh, yeah. because you know you know per square foot we're able to produce more solar or more energy out of a solar cell today that i mean tenfold than what we were in say 2000 you yeah. know so if if in by 2030 we're producing 10 times more energy per square foot than we are now we're going to be able to put the right amount of solar on your house to make enough energy and then some for you to run your whole house and then at that point, it's going to be a, a question of can we store it and can we use it when we need it? And then when we get when that technology gets dialed in to that extent, I would I would say outside of like shoveling your like shoveling snow off your panels if they get covered, <laughs> outside of that being a problem, you know that's going to be the future of energy like that and and microgrids and things like that. So should we wait? Until that technology gets better to even get solar panels or should people be getting solar panels, you know, as we speak kind of thing? Because one thing I've heard is just solar panels and just solar energy is just not efficient yet for, I guess, just typical everyday needs. So if if you're paying 13 cents a kilowatt hour today and your energy bill is $200 a month, 
You can put a $20,000 solar array on your property. You can finance that for 150 bucks a month, mm-hmm. you know, and that could cover your entire bill. And obviously I'm using round numbers there, um, but, you know, and, and each, each, you know, and when, if you go on our social media and stuff like that, we have examples where a homeowner would say, Hey, I was used to paying X and here's a $0 energy bill, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so the savings are immediate and there's also a 26% federal tax credit right now. Are there other incentives? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and in some states or some parts of the country, there's aggressive state incentives. Ohio essentially has none, which is, mm. which is, which is definitely insulated us from competition to, the, and, but also uh, prevented the advent of really high volumes of adoption or higher volumes of adoption. You know, like a state like Massachusetts has really intense state incentives. Um, like uh, I think North Carolina, uh, perhaps I think North Carolina, extremely intense state incentives. So it's really incentivizing people, you know, where they're getting a larger percentage of this total system paid for by federal and, and state governments. But, you know, and even in Ohio, we're going to get four to five peak hours of sunlight per day. And the levelized cost of energy that a solar array produces today uh, mm-hmm. is going to pay for itself in that five to seven year range. So really, with a solar panel itself, you know, I, 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 I like to use the analogy of like, you know, when I was in high school, I had a flip phone, <laughs> you know, it makes me sound yeah, old, yes, yeah. but, you know, like, like, a, like, T-9. like, a, like a flip phone, like a rate, like a, a, a razor. Actually, I don't even think my family, we were, we were too poor to me. Oh, to I remember the days of the razor or yeah, the but, sidekick, <laughs> you know, but like, if you, if you hold a razor in your left hand and then an iPhone 10 in your right, yeah. the technology is drastically different between those two products. I think that the solar panel industry already has the iPhone, if I'm kind of extending mm-hmm. my analogy. So, you know, we, you know, we have a platinum partnership with uh, LG Electronics. So mm-hmm. we're actually, we have an exclusive and platinum partnership with LG. So really, um, you, you know, we're the only ones who can get you LG. And, and, and that, that to me, I think it's like an iPhone 5. You know, if, if, if an iPhone 10, so it, it, my, my, my argument against that of what you said is, does solar even make sense now? You know, uh, like, are you going to wait 10 years just to get a phone or are you going to get it now? Constantly innovative, innovating and and evolving. So what do you think as a state too, we could do better or that you would like to see Ohio and, and Kentucky and Indiana too, because you're, you're working in different states do better for incentives to potentially push more solar energy. I mean, it's, it's we're, we're kind of in the baby steps phase. Mm-hmm. So like I actually spoke before the Ohio Senate and there's a, I think it's H uh, house bill 10, I believe. And, and so that would, what that, so it passed the first wave. Now it's going through the house and then DeWine would have the opportunity to sign it. So that would basically restrict homeowners associations from saying you can't put solar in a, an HOA that that's, that's Ohio. So like that would, that would be a huge win. So that'd be a really good baby step. So what could Ohio do? It could pass that bill. There's another program um, that's called SREX solar renewable energy credits. And Ohio used to have a great SREX program. So basically, so let's just say uh, a solar array that you put on an average house would create a certain number of like solar units per mm-hmm. year. And then a company like PG&E would be required to produce a certain number of solar units based on their size. Um, so in most cases, the, a company like that, they can't produce enough solar units or, or clean energy credits uh, to meet their portfolio standard. So then they would have to buy those. And, and you, could, you can basically, you create like, um, uh, like I would say units, almost like a, like a coin. And then, and then you would create that unit and then that unit would have a value. And you could actually sell those as like stocks so you're actually self self creating energy credits that you can be bought and sold. So back when we started the company, those energy credits in Ohio were worth like maybe 40, 50 bucks each. Uh, and they're worth like 50 cents now. Interesting. Um, you know, so, so the value of those credits. And so the, what they did is, is they actually opened up. Uh, so, so Ohio used to be a market where companies based in Ohio could only buy and sell credits that were created in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, but so then when they opened up that market to, to the national database, it's the same as supply and demand or not database, but market, then the demand stayed the same, but the supply of credits that could be purchased was infinitely greater. So you could buy any number of credits from anywhere, which drove the cost or the value of those solar energy units down. So that solar that that solar renewable energy credit program, a state like Massachusetts would have a really strong solar renewable energy credit program. So then the state 
is actually buying those credits at, you know, some, in some cases, you know, you could produce say 10 credits a year and those cases, those, those credits could be worth $1,500 a credit, Mm -hmm. you know? So if you're, imagine buying a system for $20,000, getting five, you know, be $5,400 of that off on your taxes. So you're really only $14,600 and, and, you know, in that you're actually financing and then you're producing five to $6,000 worth of credits each year, you know, you're going to be in the positive in two and a half years and yeah. then you're going to have a cash cow on your roof until they change the credits policy. You know, so that would be another thing that states could do. I mean, Ohio, Kentucky, and Indiana, they're still pretty backward in terms of policy creation to to um, stop propping up dirty energy and to start propping up clean energy. Mm-hmm. I mean, we are still in the Stone Age in terms of policy in, in our state. I mean, to the extent that there was the uh, first energy bailout, if you guys heard about that, um, where the state of Ohio gave a billion dollars or something to first energy or $50 million or $500 million. I think it was $550 million. But so the state of Ohio gave $550 million to first energy, who, by the way, never took their name off the Cleveland Brown Stadium. So they had enough money to uh, be the name, the first energy stadium. So they were paying hundreds of millions of dollars a year just to have their company's name on a stadium. But they needed $550 million from the state of Ohio, including a $60 million bribe uh, for a government official in the state of Ohio. Um, that's, an, that's an easy one to Google. So, you know, one guy just got $60 million for pushing that through. So, I mean, dirty energy equals dirty money. Uh, and you can follow the paper trail Dirty energy is not being propped up because it's safer or financially more beneficial. It's being propped up because the people who are paying for the politicians to be in office are the ones that are pocketing the cash, and there that's where the that's where the political interests are. There's so, no other. I'm going to play devil's it. advocate on this one. What yeah. about all the people that are currently working in those industries, especially in the, like the coal miners? You know, I lived in Youngstown for some time, and you know that that whole area, it's coal mining. It is, you know, it's not necessarily clean energy, but you know, people need a living, and so I guess what would you say to that? Like, how could we as a society make a shift? I mean, I think I think I think the answer is easy. But I think what's challenging is the practical application. You know, I, I had a, I was on a, actually I was on a, a, a winter cross country ski course in Ely, Minnesota. And uh, I said, I said, there was this, uh, I'm not going to be negative, but uh, there was a gentleman that I said, I worked in the renewable energy space. And he said, yeah, I'll send all the XL pipeline people down to uh, get a job from you. Uh, mm-hmm. And I said, I said, yeah, you know, what's funny is, is that, you know, uh, my grandpa, before the automobile, he worked in the carriage industry, you know, and he was pretty pissed when he lost his job to, uh, you know, the uh, automobile industry because yeah. carriages just weren't popular anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, th- you know, so the answer, the answer to that question is, is that the demand for the energy doesn't change. So if if every house in Ohio was going to go solar, every person could go get a job where they don't get black lung uh, from installing solar panels on a roof. Again, those people can be retrained. Those jobs can be, you know, the, the, we, we, can re- we can reinvent and reinvest in a new energy related jobs. It's just, it's just, it's, you know, so there getting are people on the same yeah. page. So would solar is freedom, would you guys train them for free in order to have them on as employee employees or w- would you expect the government to pay for that? Or how would you expect them like to pay for the training? You know, we've thought about doing a, and this this would probably be something that we would need to increase in size to be able to accomplish, but we've thought about creating a, some type of a trade school that would be an internal trade school program. We're basically, we have a, a one of our area, one of our, our director of operations is going to be moving um, and helping us open a new market. We're going to be opening three offices south of Cincinnati. And so so our installer that's going to be moving down there to kind of help steer the ship from an operations standpoint, he's a, a veteran. He's a, a Marine, former Marine Corps officer. And he said that, you know, with, with the bases and things like that that are down there, we're going to start a program where we start bringing in, you know, people, veterans that are trying to kind of re- get reintroduced into society and he would be a great mentor for them. So that's kind of, that's kind of one of those things where it's not, it's, we're not, we're not directly training or in this case would not directly be training people that would be losing a job in dirty energy or non-renewable energy, you know, 
and, and bringing them on to Solaris Freedom. But we're, we're talking about creating, and this is just something that we've talked about internally, creating a veteran initiative where we would, we would train people who have just, just, just been, you know, honorably discharged. They're maybe having trouble kind of finding their way or reintroducing themselves into society. So that would be a, a maybe, I'm not going to say a high risk group, but that would be a, a group where, you know, we would be kind of preemptively training those people to learn clean energy, learn the clean energy profession, you know, but I think, I think it's some type of a trade school program, you know, where, you know, we, we have paid for some of our electricians to do, um, you know, a master's and journeyman license. Um, so we, we have sponsored that in the past. We would, we would definitely need to have a certain volume level before we would want to, you know, uh, I would say we were pretty much, we would be pretty much subbing that, subbing the education piece out right now. But I would say I would definitely be open to it, where as our needs expand, I think a lot of the positions that we do hire for from an installer standpoint, you know, we have a position on our staff called a ground boss. A ground boss is basically a hybrid between an electrician and someone who's working on the roof, kind of managing, uh, getting, making sure the panels and the rails are on the roof, you know, making sure all the pictures of the job are taken because we take safety photos and everything like that. Mm that position doesn't really require any experience. So if someone were to say, if they were to repeal the first energy bailout, and then there was 100 people that were losing jobs in Cleveland because or 200 or whatever, because that facility is no or some of their facilities are no longer operating, we would have entry level positions that someone from that industry would be able to come in, get paid, work on the job and potentially come up through the ranks. Mm -hmm. You know, so so we have we have uh, we have Positions where that are entry level unskilled positions that people that are coming from those types of industries would definitely make would definitely fit into. Yeah, and I think it also goes back to seeing the trends too, and going back to the metaphor of the phone. To think that we're going to be bringing back flip phones would be, I think, kind of silly to say. So seeing where the trends are going as well is just as important, and being willing to adapt. Now, when it comes to the solar panels, are you also doing commercial, or is it just residential? We do residential and small commercial. We don't do anything utility scale. But I, 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 I like to be challenged on these things. My follow-up question is, where's this industry going? Like, is it mm. going to be, you know, kind of like the iPhone and just keep going? It's kind of just different iterations of the same thing? Or do you think there's actually going to be, like, true innovations? I know up in Warren, Ohio, they have, you know, the bright uh, energy incubator up there, but you know, Lordstown Motors, LG, as you mentioned, is partnered with uh, you know GM to create batteries up there. Um, LG so Chem. What? Yeah, where is it going? Well, and from a business perspective too, how much are other businesses also leading this pack? I would say that businesses are not leading the pack. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, um, because and what I hear a lot in a business setting is, and and you know, and I think. There's 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 a distinction that we at least and because we have relatively limited experience in B2B, we're more of a residential company, mm-hmm. you know, but um, what I hear a lot from a bit from a business standpoint is, well, I can, you know, I can spend my money on asset X and I can get my money back in two years. So if if I've got a longer than a two year, if I've got longer than a two year return, then solar doesn't make sense for me. You know, so the difference between a traditional investment and solar is that if you were to go, let's just say, I don't know, because we talked to a, we talked to some breweries. If you know whatever those huge canister things are, they keep beer in. It's like, hey, if mm-hmm. I buy a giant beer canister, then that's going to pay me back in two years. Well, the difference is, is that Duke Energy is not going to let you go buy a beer canister with the money that you were supposed to be paying them. That that's that's mm-hmm. the difference. You know, so that let's just say thousand dollars a month at the business level, at the at the commercial level, that money you have to spend it with Duke. That's a sunken cost; it doesn't go away. You you cannot reinvest the th- you cannot reinvest the thousand dollars that you're spending on, with uh, on Duke with a month. You can't reinvest mm-hmm. that in some and anything else except energy. So that when you compare return on investment periods, ap- apples to periods, apples to apples. And solar doesn't pencil, you know, to me, that doesn't make sense because, you you know, if you were to go buy something that pays for itself in two years, well, if solar pays for itself in five, those five years that you could have been paying for solar, you're just wasting that money with your energy company. You're giving it away. So you're really, you're, rent, you're renting your energy from your energy company. Well, where is the industry going? Mm-hmm. I, th- I think that, that, that the, the future of energy is user, user generation. 
a single user generation and storage. That's where that's the future of our energy in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and and what that does is is there's no reliance on the grid. There's no no terror attack, natural disaster, or anything like that can knock out your power. So at some point, every rooftop in the United States that's eligible for it is going to have solar on it, and they're going to have a battery that stores it, and they're going to be disconnected from the grid. That's the future of energy in the United States. Period. So when it comes to a day-to-day, if that's the future of energy, right? So hypothetically, we all have solar panels on our house. Then who is responsible for also maintaining that? Would it be if, hey, solar is freedom, you're going to come and install it. Are you also then going to be there if we have problems? Yeah, so we offer a comprehensive 25-year warranty on all of the products that we install. That's parts and labor. Now, what ends up, so, so one of the problems that the industry as a whole is going to have to solve is if we have a customer whose solar panels stop working yeah. a- at this time, they stop saving money. So for right now, if, if a homeowner's solar array is down for a certain amount of time, we would actually just then reimburse you for what you lost. So, so, mm-hmm. so if, if our, if, if we have a hundred systems that go down and those systems are out for 60 days, then we would actually, we would be financially responsible for all that lost energy at this point. You know, that's part of our warranty. So then we would write a check to all those homeowners and we'd make it right. But that's one of, that's one of the issues that the industry is going to need to resolve, which is, so, so there's, there's still with battery technology, daytime backup, you know, the major players in the energy conversion space, DC to AC, those companies are working really hard to answer those types of questions. So the reason why we're not putting batteries on the majority of our systems is that a a battery right now is very costly with limited use. So if I, you know, putting solar on a normal size house, you know, you could spend up to 20, say 20, 30, $40,000 extra, and you're really not even going to get full-time off-the-grid backup, you know, unless you've got a perfect array, you know, a ground-mounted system, probably two to three times more energy than what you actually use on a daily basis. And mm-hmm. you've got maybe $100,000 worth of batteries to back it all up. You can be, quote, off the grid. The computer that was in the first space shuttle is, is less powerful than a, an iPhone today. You know, so, so like that battery technology has to come around. I even think about like the battery technology, but also just what about the houses, like you said earlier, that just aren't even fit and suitable for solar? You know, I think there are still questions that the industry as a whole has to answer as yeah. the as the industry develops and getting the battery technology dialed in. So what's going to end up happening is when there's there's going to be a tipping point where a company like Duke, for example, they can't make money anymore because because if if X number of houses, so let's just say they have 10,000 houses, they obviously have hundreds of thousands of mil- millions of houses. But imagine if if every, you know, imagine there's 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 a magic equation out there that would say once X number of houses does not buy, need that are not buying energy from Duke anymore, Duke's business model is then failed. Then they they go into bankruptcy, which would mean that they can no longer distribute energy to the houses that don't have solar mm-hmm. uh, from a financial standpoint. So in that in that case, my thought process is going to be more along the lines of community-driven solar or uh, microgrid technology, where there's a solar field or a solar farm or even a power plant or a coal plant that distributes energy to a smaller area. The reason why the battery technology is so important is because, because an energy company can tell me, hey, if you're making energy at your house, well, piss off, I'm not going to buy it from you. If you have solar, so be it. You know, I mean, that, you know, yeah. that, that's, that's illegal to an extent, but it's only illegal to the extent that without user generated solar, Duke Energy could not make enough energy to keep the lights on for everyone that is hooked up to Duke's grid. So they yeah, need, pe- they need people to have solar now in order for them to even be able to keep the lights on. So mm-hmm. they encourage people to use less energy. So, so right now we're so far behind that, you know, like in states like California and Arizona, they're lobbying against people getting solar. They're lobbying against it because they're in a different phase. They have, they can make enough energy and they're not made, they're not making their profits anymore because so many people have it. Um, so mm-hmm. in here in Ohio, they're in actually to an extent encouraging it because they're not losing money yet. And they're, we're building homes and new schools and malls and everything so quickly that solar is necessary for them. 
But so there's a, there's, there's kind of two, two key points in time there, particularly for the Midwest market. The first key point in time is, is, is when is it no longer going to help the energy company to encourage people to go solar? And when that go, when that hits, then, then what are they going to do? And then there's going to be a point where so many people have it that they can't make money anymore. And what are they going to do then? So it's, it's going to be interesting to see how the future plays out. Mm-hmm. Um, the reality is, is that you can't live with it. You can't live without it in terms of rooftop solar and user generated solar now from an energy stand company standpoint. So they can't lobby and make it illegal because they need it, mm-hmm. <laughs> but That's then they, they can't, but they don't want it to cut into their profits. So the energy company pays an extreme amount of money for that top 1% of that generated energy because they have to buy that and they buy it at a very expensive rate. So it's really when there's a huge demand on the grid is when that that top tier of energy coming from your energy company, that's what costs them all the money. That's why, you you know, people, they said, well, somebody got a $10,000 energy bill in Texas because there was so much strain on the grid. There was so little energy being produced that the energy companies were paying outrageous amounts of third-party generation charges from third-party suppliers that they were that 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 the the Duke Energy down there was buying energy. They were buying energy from a third-party distributor who was saying, "I'm going to charge you ten thousand percent of what you were buying it from for me yesterday because there's such a high demand." So it's a it's a it's it's a tightrope between high demand and losing profit, and that's the tightrope that energy companies are walking right now. I'm going to actually take us on a different tangent. Talk more about the business side. You know, we do have a lot of entrepreneurs that listen to the show. Like, what has been the hardest thing about starting, you know, your own business and what's been the most rewarding? I think every entrepreneur knows that if you don't have the stomach to get your teeth kicked in on a regular basis, then you shouldn't try it. I did a like a sit down with a like a business professional that I have a lot of respect for here in Cincinnati. And he said, hey, you're going to be gone for 60 days are you nervous that your business is going to be is going to be in trouble or have vanished when you get when you mm-hmm. get back? Uh, and I said, well, I took a seventy five hundred dollar loan from my mom that she that we got from a loan shark company that she had to take out a second loan against her Rav four to give me seventy five hundred bucks so I could start a business in two thousand and eleven. You know, so if I came back and and there was and everything was in ashes and there was nothing left, then I would just start again. And I, I don't, I'm not afraid of that, you know, so, so uh, I think the moral of that, that anecdote is you have to be able to push it. And, and I'm not saying to be reckless and irresponsible, but innovation doesn't come without risk and entrepreneurship, you know, to an extent, you have to be able to risk everything and, and you, you, you push your, you know, I mean, there, there, there were many times that I pushed all of my chips to the center of the table between 2011 and 2021. And sometimes I lost, you know, even with everything pushed in, you know, there were times when we were on the brink, you know, and bad business decisions or bad partnerships. Uh, You know, there were, there were moments when I was like, Hey, if we don't get this deal, then it's going to crush us. But, you know, when, when we had lines of credit and at different places, you know, my name was on the, you know, I was a personal guarantor for, for, Mm -hmm. you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in lines of credit. And I think there are many examples of of entrepreneurials. You know, I, I think I think like Richard Richard Bronson, I think his name is. You know, he you look at his list of failed businesses. He has you know more bankruptcies than successes. You know, so I think I think that there's 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 almost especially when you want to go to high stakes. You know, there's uh, there's blind ambition that that kind of has to exist in the entrepreneurial space. And I think without it, you're always gonna you know, you may end up being successful, but you know, I, I think I think it's kind of hard to fall. It's it's kind of hard to do anything but fall short of your own personal uh, potential uh, without throwing it all in. What is like one thing you've learned that you think you'll carry with you till you know you kick the bucket? I've learned that being a president and CEO makes you good at nothing. So like I, I I like wouldn't be able to go get a job <laughs> because I'm just not good at anything. It's fascinating though because you also said that at the beginning of this you don't feel like you're an entrepreneur though, but it clearly you are, which is fascinating to me. Uh, I mean I I I uh, I just I would say 
I, I it was never a goal of mine to be an entrepreneur. Like mm-hmm. I, 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 I all like I wanted to pay my debt. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be debt free. That was my one singular focus. I studied it every day. I imagined every day what it would be like. And actually, sitting on my wall, it's the student loan fulfillment obligation letter that I received three days before my birthday in 2013, on uh, November 11th, 2013. I paid off my student loan debt in full from uh, my my university study. Do you believe in traditional college and going into debt and going to school in such a fashion? I, I changed as a human being, like fundamentally, in mm-hmm. terms of my thought process, you know, studying Kant and Hegel and Nietzsche. Mm-hmm. If there was a way to do that, you know, if there were, because I mean, and, and I was, I was a typical, like, you know, young, you know, young 20s idiot. And so, so like, in a lot of ways, I had to be forced to, um, you know, to like engage myself, you know, but so like when I, when I did that, you know, I mean, the, the, I mean, really it was kind of a light switch moment for me and with, with my relationship with philosophy. And really, I don't know if I ever, I'd have to go back and look at my transcript, but I don't know if I ever got a B anything, anything lower than a, than a, than a, an A minus in any philosophy class. Cause I just really enjoyed doing it. Yeah. So like the process of higher education is really helpful. And so the space that academia creates if you can spend time there and you can be there and if you're in and you're interested and you enjoy being there, that's really a great place to be. So this philosophical journey that you've taken through academia, through travel, with paying down your debt, all of that, yeah. how does this correlate back into your business? And it kind of and then goes back to, you know, why do you also believe in solar? So how do you how does this all intertwine together? I mean, so the the reason why I started a solar company and the reason why I run a solar company are two different answers. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason why I started a solar company is because I thought it was a good, I thought it was a good extension of my business and I thought it made sense. And then I realized that it was an underserved market. And, you know, I, I legitimately think, cause you know, it's our goal as a company to go to 60 offices and we're going to double our revenue for the fourth year in a row this year. And so if we if we replicate that, the success we're having in our three markets to 57 more markets will be a one point two billion dollar company. So to take seventy five hundred dollars from mom's RAV4 and parlay that into one point two billion in annual revenue, that would be an interesting benchmark. So I I started a solar company because I thought it made sense Uh, Mm -hmm. and the same line of thinking as I wanted to find the fastest way to success. I, I own and operate a solar company because every single day that I wake up, I get to change the world. And really, I'm, you know, I, you know, I, I feel like people who work in the renewable energy space get to wear the cape. I mean, you know, who's who is Superman today? You know, we are in the middle of the largest and most passionate problem facing the human race that we have ever, ever even fathomed. I would say the two greatest threats to humanity are climate change and artificial intelligence. And I'm not going to fuck around with artificial intelligence. <laughs> so, I mean, and that's, if we end up killing our, our, we end up destroying ourselves because we created something smarter than us. To me, that's evolution. So be it. But we can stop climate change. And I, I think, I think that, that reducing our carbon emissions is overwhelmingly important. Getting a chance to be a part of saving the world is overwhelmingly important. And, you know, I mean, the list of, you know, and, and simple things like, how many people have bought houses because of the company? You know, we have an amazing team. Yeah. And I feel like I could, our listeners, God bless if you're still hanging in there for this, but I think this has been, I could be asking more questions, but we won't linger it on too much longer. However, I kind of want to close the loop here and ask that final question of, for those who might be young entrepreneurs or looking to become an entrepreneur, what advice would you be able to give via your experience? I, I know exactly how to answer this question. <laughs> so every single, every, I guess for the first few years of the company, I would always give a, an address to the group. And it's funny seeing the faces change and then the room getting bigger. And I would always say there is one common denominator in all of the people that I have seen succeed that the people that I've seen fail not have. So to me, I think there's, there's one thing and it's a really simple simple concept. 
Um, but there's one thing that I've seen that people that succeed have that people that don't, they don't have this, they don't succeed. And I'm going to, I'll say it and then I'll elaborate on it. But the word is ideas. So the people that I have seen succeed at the highest level are the ones with the strongest and most tangible ideas about what they think that they can be. Because like I was telling you guys earlier, I was never somebody that said, I want to travel. Mm-hmm. When I, I, like, I, I was never somebody that said, hey, I, want, I really want to buy a sports car. I really want to buy a watch. Anything that I've ever done in my life, I have gone overwhelmingly so far into it that I make it as functionally tangible as possible before it actually exists. So I try to manifest the things that I believe about my life and my business into reality. So the people that if you want to start a business, don't underprepare yourself for it. Overprepare yourself for what you're going to encounter because it's it's almost impossible to not it, it, it is 100% impossible to not encounter things that you didn't expect. But if you are fundamentally and overwhelmingly prepared for everything, you know, so the people always ask me, well, you know, do you get do you stay up late or do you get up early? Well, the answer is both. I stay up late and I get up early, you know, but you know, why, why do you do that? The reason why is because when I was paying my student loan debt, if I got fired from a job, I got another job the next day because guess what? My debt wasn't paid. And I wasn't going to not be working towards that goal. I was in between jobs. I was looking for another job. I got a job. I started a new job on Monday. Well, I did the math. Was it paying me enough? Well, I was applying for a new job on Monday after I got home from work. You know, so it's, you know, but the thing is, is that 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 cornerstone idea that is in my heart, that always, that was always the source of my, of my decision making. You know, so I, I was, I was, I've always been guided by the idea that I had about what I thought that I could be. And if I think that I can go to the summit of Mount Everest, then I have to do everything imaginable to make it. Mm-hmm. So, so if, if you're, if you're a young entrepreneur and you, and you want to start a business, then find out every single detail that you can possibly find out about what you want to do as in terms of your, from a business perspective, find out who you're competing against, find out what they're charging for your products, find out how many positions you're going to need, find out how much capital you're going to need, find out everything, be intimate about your approach mm. to, to, to doing it and, and let the end goal drive you. So it's the, I think it's the, uh, it's the why, it's the why seven. You ask mm-hmm. yourself why seven times and your last answer is your real answer. You know, why do you want to start a business? Okay, well, I want to support my family. Well, why do you want to support your family? Well, I don't want, you know, so you kind of go down that rabbit hole and you find out what you really want, what really motivates you. Extreme motivation uh, comes from extreme and concrete ideas. You know, you want to buy a Rolex. Well, what Rolex? What color is it? What's the bracelet clamp like? Is it a perpetual date or not? Is it a crystal face or is it not? You know, what color is it? What year is it? When was it made? How much does it cost to maintain it? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, if you want to buy a car, what, you know, you know, and so on, you know, like, like if you want to get a certain car, you should be driving it to work every day for 10 years before you own it. The people that are ambiguous about what they think that they can do and ambiguous about what they, what they want are the ones that go away. And the ones that don't stay out late on a Friday, like, you know, every Friday night for the past seven months, I've ran stairs. And then swam and then did a workout and then stretched. So I, 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 every Friday night from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. for the past seven months, I've done the same workout every Friday. The reason why, the reason why I do that is because I know where I want to go. And I know that where I want to go is demanding that of me. Yeah, right. So it's preparation meets opportunity, preparing yourself for success. But that means you have to force yourself sometimes to do things that aren't so glamorous all the time and you have to sacrifice things. Well, the, the, it's, it's, the, it's the intimacy and the detail mm-hmm. of the goal that puts the gas in the tank mm-hmm. because, because I'm, I don't, I don't, you don't burn at both ends if you know that what you're doing is getting you to where you want to go. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's starting, with, starting with where you want to go and then building your life around that. And, and if, you, if, you, if you function that way, you can go, you can go really far. And I, and I always, I, I tell my sales team, I say, Hey, if I told you that if you sold five jobs today, that I would put a million dollars in your bank account at, at the, at, at 1201, do you think that you'd sell five jobs today? Or do you think you'd finish the day with four? 
You'd be going for the fifth. You'd, you'd, you would do whatever it takes to get to five, right? Yeah. So if you ask yourself yep. that question every day for the next 10 years, whatever it is that your goal was, you'll have it in your bank account that day, after 10 years. If you live yep. your, if you, if you function that day, like today is the day that's going to get you that money. If you can start each day with that mindset, game over, baby. Let's go. I'm ready to accomplish and take on the world. Let's go. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I had so many more questions for him, but you know, not letting this podcast go for a good 24 hours. <laughs> no, we even you, hit a record. <laughs> it was great. It was great. And like now I'm ready to start the week. You know, we're recording this on a Sunday night. So very motivated right now. All of, I really, there's so many takeaways, right? I'll start with the more of the philosophical side and what's top of mind right now, just because we just talked about it, closing that thought of preparation meets opportunity. Being. If you want to be successful, you do have to be prepared. And there's a little bit of luck and timing in things, but I do also believe that when that opportunity strikes and if you're ready for it, it will present itself and you will find that success, which then kind of leads into that deeper philosophical thought of the why. Mm-hmm. Asking yourself seven times, why do you want to do this? The and that pebble, last seven, the th- yeah, the pebble. Why do you want to do this? Really diving deep into that thought, that train of thought, I think is really interesting. Definitely. And I think of kind of a philosophical thing that I took away that kind of also wove its way throughout that entire Mm -hmm. conversation was, you know, Tony really enjoyed the journey. Mm -hmm. And I think that goes back to his, like him understanding his why. So Mm -hmm. the, the journey of being an entrepreneur, the journey of, you know, hiking and climbing Mount Mm -hmm. Everest and of traveling. And, you know, even from, it sounded like he didn't know what his why was starting out. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why he had 14 jobs, he said, and, you know, tried Mm -hmm. different things, but clearly he found out what his why was and now he's a president of a solar company which yeah as you know in 2021 on the verge of being a 60 million dollar company is absolutely incredible you start out with 7500 dollars in your pocket and what is it that motivates you and what the 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 concept of which is a little counterintuitive right we had just talked about striving for excellence Hmm. you know versus leaving a legacy and in a weird way, they do go hand in hand. So what is the intent? What is your intent? Again, the why that motivates you and is your intent good? And his intent is obviously very clearly good when he's like, so, you know, I'll be buried six feet under with everybody else. But that story, that process, that narrative of his journey, the struggles, the highs and the lows, you, you can't achieve what you're doing without really pushing yourself and, and giving yourself that freedom to fail. Mm. He is writing that narrative and hoping in his legacy, at least I hope for him, that his legacy is people will learn from his experience. Well, it sounds like he's teaching what he's already yeah. learned to his employees, which I think is yeah. really cool. Um, you know, he was saying like, yeah, it started out with just a few people and, you know, obviously a whole bunch of familiar faces. Now they're mm-hmm. what, 100 employees and he's like, uh, yeah. <laughs> he's giving this a different speech now, you know? <laughs> yes, right. And that's got to be super satisfying. And maybe he'll be like, because he said he, he thought he was going to be in academia. Maybe he'll be a philosophy teacher or something one day or even a business teacher. I don't know. You see, you which, see, you see might be calling him up. I know. Or Xavier. I know. <laughs> let's let's hope so. I'm wearing my my savior shirt right now, but you know, and full circle closing the loop back to entrepreneurship. What he had to say about the future of where it's going uh, of energy, how we get our energy, the adapting and innovating within our own space. I think that's just something to keep an eye out for as we move forward, mm. right? That from a policy standpoint, what can we do here? In Ohio, if we want to see that change to clean energy, how can we participate and, you know, maybe be a little bit more vocal and say, hey, do I know? Let's start to, to give more incentives to residents to install solar if also Duke is being overwhelmed and we don't know these things. Yeah, no, I think that kind of shocked me that it is so heavily government focused, even though it's like an individual decision to put solar panels in your house or not. Right. But it's an undertaking too. Yeah. Right? which so, like, That's why I think the whole farming, are we, I, I see that's where I don't necessarily agree is us all. And I think he said it too. Tony said it, that individual 
being completely off the grid and independent doesn't necessarily make sense. And that's probably not the most efficient. So mm-hmm. you're going to see more of open farms, maybe with rows and rows of solar panels that then the microgrids, trace back, right? The microgrids that trace back to communities. That just seems in my mind to be more efficient. It would definitely be interesting. Maybe, maybe when we're neighbors, Allie, we'll have, we'll have our own micro grid. (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) I don't know. You might just stay over there on the West side. (laughs) Well, on that note, this was awesome. And I think this was another successful podcast. And I think it's time to, um, prost to future innovation. (laughs) Cheers. Cheers. And here's some necessary legal stuff. Ali Martin and Patrick Bailey developed the When Pigs Fly podcast in collaboration with the Up Company LLC. At the time of this recording, we do not own equity or other financial interest in the companies which appear on this show unless otherwise indicated. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinions of the EW Scripts Company and its affiliates or Generator Management LLC and its affiliates or any entity which employ us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. We have not considered your specific financial situation nor provided any investment or legal advice on this show. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next week. We also want to give a shout out to Claire and Christian of Moonbow. They're the two artists of our intro song, which is so catchy and gets stuck in our heads all the time. So bop over to Spotify or wherever you find your music and give them a listen. And Like the Night by Moonbow is courtesy of Silver Lake Sync.